introduction. Thank you all for being here. Please let me know if you can't hear me, because I tend to speak quite quietly. So the title of my talk today is Unraveling the Neural Basis of Metabolic Disease. We'll figure it. We'll figure it out. Don't worry. Good. For our parents and grandparents' generation, metabolic disease was really something of a rarity. In the 1960s, just 10% of the US population were obese. And morbid obesity was vanishingly rare. But over the last 50 years, obviously, metabolic disease has become one of the major health issues of our time. In the US, it's now 27% of adults have obesity, 14% hyperlipidemia, and 8% diabetes, with a staggering 35% having pre-diabetes. The cost of diabetes alone is $245 billion in the world. Thank you. <clears throat> it's $245 billion, and obviously the personal cost... Maybe if I move this. Yeah, this is working. Okay. Is that better? Yeah. yeah. Okay, I'll move on apologize. And obviously the personal cost is even higher, with a reduction in life expectancy of between 10 to 20 years for those with diabetes. We have treatments, but at best they're suboptimal and at worst they're inadequate. And perhaps one reason for that is if we look at this horrendous slide, <laughs> which is from a UK health think tank, which suggests that there are over 180 factors that contribute to, to obesity and metabolic disease. So how on earth do we begin to unravel and tease out the different components of this? So my talk today is going to have three parts. I'm going to tell you a little bit about the evidence for neuroregulation and metabolism, particularly with an emphasis on diabetes. I'll then briefly give an overview of the neural pathways controlling glucose metabolism. And then finally decide, describe some of the approaches that I've been using to dissect these pathways. A combination of mapping connections with viral traces, trying to identify landmark populations using a technical backtrack, and then finally trying to dissect function by remote activation of neurons. So although diabetes has been described since the beginning of human history, there are descriptions in ancient Egypt and ancient Greece, the investigation of the etiology of diabetes really began in the 1800s with the French physician Paul Bernard. And what he noted was that even isolated hepatic tissue could produce glucose. In subsequent studies, he showed that manipulation at the base of the fourth ventricle could regulate this hepatic glucose production. And he hypothesized that there were actually two outflows, two neural pathways, one controlling glucose production from the liver and the other glucose uptake and utilization in tissues such as adipose tissue and muscle. And that diabetes was actually a disorder of the neural control of these organs. So for many years, diabetes was actually viewed as a neurological rather than an endocrine disorder. Of course, this changed in the 1920s with Bantam and Best and the discovery of insulin. And then soon after, the discovery of pancreatic glucose. And then for many years, diabetes was viewed purely as an endocrine disorder. Over the last 10 to 15 years, this has changed somewhat, with the work of Brannick's group in particular, who looked at the um, activation of neural subpathways using carbocol, the cholinomimetic group. And what they found was actually that neural pathways again influence hepatic glucose production, but also influence pancreatic function and glucose utilization. And that one of the major signals is 
not just insulin and leptin feeding back from the CNS, but also glucose itself. So now perhaps the balance has shifted a little bit, and diabetes can be both as a neural and an endocrine disorder. So I'm now going to give you a very brief and very high level view of the neural pathways controlling glucose metabolism. And for that we need to take a coronal section through the brain and look at the base of the brain, the hypothalamic region. And here, in this region, there are numerous groups of cell bodies which are organized into what are called hypothalamic nuclei of various sorts, which I'll come to later. And what we really want to know is whether or not there are glucose-responsive cells Thank you, I'll speak up a little more. There are glucose-responsive cells in these regions. And one way of doing so is to see whether or not we can see neural activation as we change peripheral glucose levels. And we do so by staining for the early immediate gene, CFOS. And the top panels show different hypothalamic nuclei in control animals. And then we can see that there's activation of neurons in almost every single hypothalamic region when you increase peripheral glucose. <coughs> Similarly, if you give the um, glucose metabolites, which are, sorry, anti-metabolite to deoxyglucose, which can't be metabolized and therefore induces intracellular hypoglycemia, you also see that there's neural activation in many of the hypothalamic neuron and nuclei that we described before. So there seem to be glucose-responsive cells, some that respond to high glucose, others that respond to low glucose, in almost every single hypothalamic nuclei. And when I say glucose-responsive, I mean not only do they use glucose as a fuel, but also that they change their firing rate in response to changes in glucose. And this has been confirmed by ex vivo studies on slices. And this is just a general summary of what's been found in the literature that there are basically glucose-excited GE cells <coughs> and glucose-inhibited cells in many hypothalamic regions. So the importance of these cells can actually be illustrated by looking at the effects of giving glucose into the CNS. So if you give glucose into the third ventricle, what you find is that peripheral glucose, circulating glucose, is markedly lowered. Conversely, if you give central 2-deoxyglucose and induce hypoglycemia in the CNS, you trigger the counter-regulatory responses, both behavioral, endocrine, and neurological, that increase circulating glucose. And this is irrespective of the level of peripheral glucose. It can override what's happening in the periphery. So central nervous system glucose overrides the peripheral signals that you receive. But of course, glucose is not the only signal that regulates blood glucose within the CNS. We all know that insulin itself reduces glucose in the periphery and in the absence of insulin or insulin signaling in diabetes. But insulin receptors are also present in the CNS, as you probably know. And if you give insulin into the third ventricle, you find that it has an effect to lower peripheral glucose. If you block the insulin receptor within the CNS, then you obviously block the effect of central insulin. But moreover, what happens if you block the central receptor is that the effects of peripheral insulin to lower the glucose are markedly reduced. So insulin does not have its full effect within the central nervous system without its action within the CNS. It doesn't have its effect in the periphery without its action in the CNS, I should say. Similarly, leptin, like insulin, acts to lower glucose. 
and in the absence of leptin or insulin receptor, you get very profound diabetes, which is insulin resistant. And just like insulin receptors, there are also leptin receptors within the CIS. If you give leptin into the third ventricle, you can lower circulating glucose. And similarly, if you block the leptin receptor within the CNS, this effect to lower glucose is lost. And just as with insulin, if you, lower, if you block the leptin receptor within the CNS, you also lose the ability of peripheral leptin to reduce <coughs> circulating blood glucose. So leptin 2 cannot have its full effect without a CNS action. So this sounds like a relatively straightforward system. But, of course, if I told you there are highly dispersed glucose-responsive populations within the hypothalamus, there are multiple receptors, not just for leptin and insulin, but for a whole host of other peptides which act on glucose metabolism. <coughs> and then, in each, in each hypothalamic region, there are a multitude of neuropeptides which may or may not have an influence on glucose homeostasis. So we're back to a system much like described before. And how do we begin to unravel this? We need to try and use old tools and new tools to try and tease apart these pieces. So now I'm going to describe some of the steps that we've been using to um, dissect these pathways. The first is to try and map the connectivity, a neuroanatomical approach, using tracing methods to map connections. The second is to try and identify molecular markers for glucose-responsive populations using backtrack with the aim to then try and use new or non-invasive tools to stimulate these neural populations and look at their effect on physiology. And hopefully this will give us a more detailed understanding of how the CNS senses and regulates glucose metabolism. So let me start with the tracing studies. And really here, the hypothesis was very simple. We wanted to trace the outflow paths from the CNS to two very active organs, the liver and adipose tissue. And the hypothesis was that if we can identify neurons that are synaptically connected to both organs that regulate glucose metabolism, then these neurons are likely to be glucose sensing. So the objectives of this study were to map the neural pathways from the CNS to liver and fat using viral traces, to try and identify the areas and even the neurons where there's overlap in the pathways, to identify the hierarchy of connections, and then to use a candidate approach to identify component neuropeptide populations. So first let me tell you about the tracer I use, and this is Pseudorabies virus. Um, despite its name, it's actually a member of the alpha herpes virus family, much like herpes simplex or varicella zoster. <coughs> it's a neurotropic virus, so it only spreads between synaptically connected neurons, not adjacent. It's a DNA virus, which means that its genome is actually very amenable to genetic manipulation, and therefore I was able to use isogenic strains which express, express fluorescent proteins GFP and RFP, green fluorescent protein and red fluorescent protein. So the wild-type virus, PRV Becker, actually spreads both in the anterograde direction, the direction of the nerve impulse, and in a retrograde direction. And this leads to very extensive infection, which is very difficult to, difficult to interpret. <laughs> So we use a mutated, attenuated form called PRV Bartha, which has lost the antigrade spread and only spreads in a retrograde direction. And one of the nice things about using PRV, Sidorabies virus, is that it's a self-amplifying tracer, which means that you can actually trace across multiple synapses without any dilution. 
So for this study, I injected uh, pseudorabies virus, PRV expressing red fluorescent protein into the liver, and pseudorabies virus expressing green fluorescent protein into the fat, and trace these back to the CNS. And here, what you'd expect to find is that neurons synaptically connected to the liver express the RFP, and those synaptically connected to fat will express GFP. And I looked in the arcuate, in the LH, and the PBN. I looked in other areas too, but these are the results that I'm going to show. <coughs> so if we look first for the synaptic connections to adipose tissue, we find that there are indeed green fluorescent protein expressing neurons in the arcuate lateral hypothalamus and the paraventricular nucleus of the hypothalamus. And then when we look for the RFP expressing neurons, we also find that you have synaptically connected neurons to liver in the same hypothalamic regions. So it looks as if the same hypothalamic regions are indeed innovating both adipose tissue and liver. So the pathways to liver and fat involve the same and multiple hypothalamic areas. So one of the nice things about PRV is that within a very narrow time window, a neuro can be infected by more than one virus. So that if you have a neuron that's synaptically connected to both liver and fat, it can, if you do the timing of the injections correctly, be infected by both the RFP expressing virus and the GFP expressing virus. And in that case, you'd expect yellow neurons. So the neurons involved in pathways to both liver and fat and synaptic connected to both organs will appear yellow. So if we go back to these regions and then ask, are there neurons in these regions which are synaptically connected to both organs? We can see that there are here in the arcuate, in the LH, and in the paraventricular nucleus. So not only are these areas innovating both organs, there are actually individual neurons within these areas, subpopulations that innovate both organs. So next we wanted to know about the hierarchy of connections, which areas were infected first, and which ones then subsequently infected. So to do that, you do a time course of infection. And on day three, we see that there's virus infection in the spinal cord. I'm just going to show you the data for the fat here. On day four, you see a few, not very many, infected neurons in the paraventricular nucleus. Day five, in the LH. By day six, it's spreading to many areas, the DMN, the VMH, and the arcuate. And by day seven, you see cortical infection. So we now have a time course which indicates that the PPN is the initial site of infection, that LH and arcuate lie upstream of that, and we have a synaptically connected pathway all the way from the cortex to a peripheral organ of adipose tissue. And this suggests that there are not only influences within the hypothalamus, but there are also maybe higher influences affecting the function of this organ. So next we wanted to try and identify the neural populations that were infected and therefore may be able to modulate these peripheral organs. And to do that, I took a candidate approach. So I'm going to show you the results for the paraventricular nucleus, and here there are multiple neuropeptides expressed. So I looked at several of these, but I'm going to show you the results for CRF, corticotrophin releasing factor. So here is a high microscopic level view of GFP-infected neurons. So these neurons are synaptically connected to adipose tissue to fat. We also find that several of these neurons express the red fluorescent protein and therefore are part of the innovation pathway to liver. If you do immunostaining for CRF and merge these figures, we can see that some of these neurons express CRF 
So CRF-expressing neurons are synaptically connected to both liver and fat and involved in the innovation of both organs. So what I've shown you here is that the innovation of liver and fat overlaps both in general areas and in specific cells. And this suggests that there's actually coordinated regulation of these organs. And as there are common neurons, or so-called one neurons perhaps, then there can be coordinated regulation. And CRF is a marker for such neurons within the paraventricular nucleus of the hypothalamus. So now I want to go on and test whether or not these CRF neurons are glucose responsive using electrophysiology. And then, as I'll come to later, try and test the function of these neurons using a non-invasive tool. So let me then go on to the second technique that we've been using, and that is to use Backtrap to identify molecular markers. As I showed you in the previous um, study, <coughs> we're using candidate approach, but obviously there may be other neuropeptides expressed in these regions that we just don't know about. So to start with, I'm going to tell you just a little bit more about the glucose-responsive cells within the CNS. And unfortunately, less is known about these than the glucose-responsive cells in the periphery. And although we don't know exactly, but it's thought that glucokinase is perhaps one of the neural sensors for glucose. We know that it's a rate-limiting step in the conversion of glucose to a change in ATP to ADP ratio within the beta cell, and this may also be the case in neurons, leading to changes in ATK, a potassium ATP channel function, and therefore changes in voltage-gated channels. But the problem has been that although glucokinase is highly expressed in the periphery, in the liver, and a separate form or a separate promoter driving pancreatic glucokinase, the expression levels within the CNS have been very, very low. And it's actually been very difficult to identify neurons that are expressing it. So glucokinase may be the gatekeeper for glucose-sensing neurons, but we need to try and find a tool for identifying those neurons. So the objectives of these studies were to try and identify the distribution of the neurons expressing glucokinase, to confirm that glucokinase neurons are glucose responsive, and then to use a non-biased approach to identify markers for subpopulations of these cells. So to overcome the problem of low expression levels with glucokinase, I use the glucokinase promoter to drive pre-recombinase. So in this, I use a bacterial artificial chromosome in the back, expressing glucokinase, and immediately downstream of the ATG start site, I put a nuclear localization signal followed by pre-recombinase, and then a stop sign, a stop signal. So the rest of the glucokinase gene is not switched on. So having modified this chromosome, it's then injected it into the fertilized pronucleus of um, a donor mother, and you find that Cre is switched on only under the, in cells where the glucokinase promoter is switched on. Now, because the rest of the glucokinase gene is not switched on, you don't get additional expression of glucokinase, and because the bacterial artificial chromosome can insert anywhere in the genome, you don't get switching off of the endogenous glucokinase. So these mice have <clears throat> the normal level of glucokinase, but they also have Cre expressed in glucokinase cells. And pre-recombinase is a very useful tool because you can use it to remove parts of DNA. So when I cross this to a reporter mouse, what I've had usually is that this is switched off. It's a stop sign. So GFP is not switched on in cells except where there's pre-expression. 
So GFP will only be expressed in cells where the Cre is switched on, and therefore these cells indicate that they express glucokinase. So let's go back to our map of where glucose responsive cells have been seen electrophysiologically and by immunostimulation, and see if there's glucokinase expression there. And what we find is yes. In the arcuate, the ventromedial nucleus, dorsomedial nucleus, paraventricular nucleus, lateral hypothalamus, these all have quite high levels of glucokinase expressing cells. So glucokinase is expressed in glucose sensing regions of the hypothalamus. We then wanted to know whether or not these cells are switched on by changes in glucose. And I went back to using immunostaining for the marker of neuronal activation of FOS. I'm just going to show you a high magnification view of the changes with low glucose. So here we have GFP expressing cells. So these cells mark glucose expression. We then give the mouse a dose of 2-DG, 2-deoxyglucose, and therefore induce hypoglycemia. And we see there's extensive FOS activation. And when you merge the figures, the FOS is co-localized with the glucokinase. So then I co-localized these throughout the hypothalamus. <coughs> so the black bars show the effects, or the, the amount of co-localization of CFOS and glucokinase in PBS-treated mice. If you then treat the mice with 2-deoxyglucose to make them hypoglycemic, what you find is that there's an increased activation of glucokinase neurons in the arcuate and in the BMH, and somewhat in the LH. In a separate group, if you give them high glucose and look for activation, you also see that there's activation in the arcuate, in the DMH, BMH, and LH. The PBN didn't really change very much. Here you gave the high glucose peripherally? Yes, peripherally, yeah. yeah. So this shows that the glucokinase expression marks a population of glucose-sensitive cells, but it marks both glucose-excited and glucose-inhibited cells. <coughs> but we need to try and define specific markers for the subpopulations within each hypothalamic nucleus to try and tease apart these um, functions further. So if I show you the ARC, for example, we know that there are many neuropeptides in the arcuate, and we need to try and identify which of those are expressed within the glucokinase neurons. And rather than using the candidate approach here, we'll use backtrack. And this is a technique which concentrates mRNA just from specific cell populations. So let me tell you a little about backtrack. So backtrack adds a GFP tag to a protein in the large subunit of the ribosome. So you get a GFP-L10 fusion protein. But you want to switch this on only in a defined subpopulation, so in my case, only in the glucokinase cells. You then have an anti-GFP antibody-coated magnetic bead. When you disrupt the tissue, the GFP binds to the anti-GFP antibodies on the magnetic bead. And this enables you to pull down just the ribosomes with the GFP tag, but more importantly, just the mRNA in the ribosomes with the GFP tag. So if you have the GFP tag in a subpopulation of cells, what you find is that you're concentrating the mRNA from those cells. So backtrap is a means of concentrating mRNA from a defined cell population. So I went back to my pre-expressing glucokinase mice, and I crossed these to a mouse line which was generated, which has, again, stop 
codon, so it's not switched on in most neurons, but in the presence of pre, the stop codon is removed, and what happens is you get expression of the GFP tagged ribosomal protein only in the glucokinase cells. You then immunoprecipitate, as I've showed you, with the anti-GFP magnetic beads, and then do microarray micro analysis, or RNA-seq, of the mRNA and look at the fold enrichment in your barren fraction compared to the total. So if we do this, what I find is that you enrich for orexin, which is found primarily in the lateral hexamus, AGRP, an arcuate express peptide, and POMC. And this is quite reassuring because all these peptides, all these populations are known to be glucose sensitive. Though orexin is a glucose inhibitor population and the role of glucokinase there has been less well explored. But the most highly enriched was GHRH, growth hormone releasing hormone. And this was not known before. So this backtrack experiment has enabled us to pull down both known and novel glucose responsive populations. So obviously I wanted to confirm the findings that GHRH neurons were actually glucose responsive. So first of all, I want to see whether there was co-localization with glucokinase, and I confirm that both by, by immunohistochemistry. And if you quantify this, you find that about 65% of GHRH neurons express glucokinase. And this is actually higher than for orexin, HRP, or POMC, where roughly about 50% or less were co-localized. And then in collaboration with Dr. Kelly in the lab, did some electrophysiology, and we found that they are indeed glucose responsive, and in fact they're glucose inhibited. At high glucose concentrations, their firing rate is reduced. So GHRH neurons are glucose inhibited population. So in this set of studies, I confirmed that glucokinase does indeed not glucose sensing neurons. They're found in both high and low glucose activated neurons. And we identified a new subpopulation within the glucokinase neurons, including GHRH. So having identified um, neuropeptide markers for subpopulations, we then want to try and go on and use the tools for activating them to see what their physiological roles are. And ideally, you want to use a non-invasive tool. So the best known, I think, of the neural activators at the moment is probably channel rhodopsin. And this is a very good tool light-dependent depolarization or hyperpolarization, depending on the tool you use. And it has a very good time course. Um, it can be cell-specific, and you can get very rapid activation or inhibition. But you require a permanent implant. And there's very limited light penetration of tissue. And this can be a major problem, particularly with some of the cell population I've been describing, which are quite dispersed, particularly along the anterior-posterior axis. So, although it's a very good tool, it's not universally applicable. And certainly for some studies, such as feeding studies, having a permanent implant can be a disadvantage. Um, you see that there is some decrease in feeding effects if you have less robust stimulators than normal. So for these type, uh, studies, I wanted to try and design a tool which could remotely and non-invasively regulate neural activity, gene expression, and protein release to try and adapt this technique for using dispersed cell populations using genetically encoded nanoparticles, and then to try and apply this technique for neural activation. So let me tell you a little bit about the system that I used. It has three components. So the first of these is radio waves. We wanted a tool that could penetrate tissue, um, which we didn't require an implant, and therefore low-frequency radio waves 
This was 465 kilohertz, can penetrate tissue quite freely. Then needed a tool to transduce the radio wave signal into a signal that could be used to switch on cells. And unlike tissue, which doesn't absorb radio waves, metal does. And we used a metal nanoparticle here, an iron oxide nanoparticle, which absorbs the radio waves and results in heating. And then to convert that heat signal into a cellular signal, I used a temperature-sensitive channel. In this case, it's a TRIP-V1, which is actually the capsaicin channel, the chili pepper channel, which is found in the skin and in your mouth, as you probably want. <clears throat> and then I also needed to try and develop a readout. And in this case, I used um, a novel engineered gene, which has three calcium-sensitive upstream response elements, a serum response element, cyclic AMP response element, and NFAT response element. And this was to try and boost the sensitivity of the signal. And then as a reporter, I used bioengineered insulin. So in this case, it was modified to put in furin cleavage sites so it could be processed in any tissue. And wanted to test whether or not this system could result in remote and regulated cell activation and gene expression. So this is just to illustrate the system. So we have an anti-his antibody on the particle, which binds to a his tag in the channel. In the presence of radio waves, the nanoparticle heats. And then that heat opens the channel. Calcium enters the cell. And the calcium in this particular illustration associates with calcium urine, which leads to dephosphorylation of NFAT that enters the nucleus and switches on expression of the reporter, which is here insulin. But you could use any gene in this situation. So first of all, I wanted to see if it worked in vitro. And this is some um, calcium imaging studies. So this is the fluorescence level of a calcium indicator, fluorophore. And in untreated cells, it's very steady. As soon as you switch on the radio frequency wave, what you see is that intracellular calcium increases. Then I wanted to see whether or not the radio waves could actually switch on my reported gene. So here is insulin. And what I find is in the absence of um, radio waves, there's again very low levels of expression. But in the presence of radio waves, I do indeed stimulate my reported gene expression. And this is then released as pro-insulin into the cell medium. So this system seems to work in vitro. It can activate calcium entry and it can activate calcium-dependent gene expression. <coughs> but the real question was, did it work in vivo? So for this, I generated some stably transfected cell lines with the modified TRIP-V1 and the insulin reporter. I injected them into nude mice and they underwent cell expansion to become an implant and then injected on the day of study either PBS or the HIST-coated, anti-HIST-coated nanoparticles. And I measured insulin before and after RF treatment and monitored glucose throughout. So this is the insulin gene expression in the cells implanted. And with RF treatment, you see that there's a significant increase in gene expression. So you're switching on your reported gene. If you look at plasma insulin, this is before the RF, and this is after the RF treatment. In the, in the nanoparticle injecting mice, you see there's an increase in plasma insulin. And then here we have blood glucose and time. These are the control-treated mice with just PBS. And here you see that with the nanoparticles, you're able to switch on <coughs> insulin expression and lower blood glucose quite well. 
So RF is able to induce insulin gene expression and release in vivo to regulate blood glucose in these mice. So this is a single pulse of radio frequency? Yes, it was well, it was one hour. One hour. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. quite a pulse. Yeah. Or if it yeah. was, it was yeah. one pulse. Um, so, so this system is great. I was very glad it worked, but there are disadvantages. So the main problem was that the nanoparticles were much like the light. You only had a very localized activation. And also, if you wanted repeated activation, you had to do another injection of nanoparticles because they're taken up by the cells. So it wasn't ideal, and certainly wasn't good for dispersed cell activation. So I wanted to try and find a way of um, genetically encoding nanoparticles within the cell so that they could be continuously produced and that they could also be produced within a very dispersed cell population. And for that, I used ferritin. So ferritin, as you know, is, is an iron storage protein. And it has um, multiple subunits, 24 in all, a combination of heavy chain and light chain. But it forms an endogenous nanoparticle. Within the protein shell, you get a 5 to 8 nanometer diameter iron oxide nanoparticle. And I'll mention here that it has complex magnetic properties, and I might come back to that later. But it's also heated by RF, much like the, the commercially made nanoparticles I used before. So I wanted to test this system, and I used three different setups. So the first was an unmodified trip channel and just um, ferritin within the cytoplasm. And here again, the radio waves, this time will penetrate within the cell, heat the iron oxide um, core within the ferritin, and that heat would then open the trip one channel. I also used a meristillated ferritin. So this is a signal which moves the ferritin to the cell membrane, and I hope we're bringing it in closer proximity to the trip V1. And then finally, I wanted to try and find a way of actually bringing the trip V1 and the ferritin together. And to do so, I tagged GFP onto the ferritin. And then onto the end terminal of the trip V1, I added um, an anti-GFP binding protein, which was actually a camelid anti-GFP antibody, which is a very short um, and very stable high affinity antibody, also known as a nanobody. And then I tested these systems in vitro using the same insulin reporter I'd done before. So what you find is, certainly in terms of pro-insulin release, having the close association of the ferritin with the channel seems to be more effective. And with gene expression, it was really not very easy to tell, but possibly more effective. But they all work. So genetically encoded nanoparticles are effective in vitro. And the anti-GFP trip V1 with the GFP tag ferritin is perhaps the most effective. So then again, I wanted to try and check whether or not this was effective in vivo. And here I used a slightly different means, which is perhaps a little bit more translational, and that was to use an adenovirus. So this has a promoter, a very strong CMV promoter. This is the anti-GFP tag tagged trip V1. I then used an internal cleavage site of 2A and this is followed by a GFP tag ferritin. And the reason for using the 2A was because I wanted to try and get high levels of expression of both the trip channel and the ferritin, um, because they need to associate. There was then a stop codon, and then I followed it with my calcium-dependent water, which I explained before. So this time I used uh, wild-type black six mice. The adenovirus is injected into the jugular, which leads to expression, particularly in the liver. And then I treated these mice with an RF field and monitored their blood glucose as before. And this is the insulin level in the liver of these mice. And 
this is the control. This is with the meristilated ferritin, so one in the membrane, and there is an increase. But there's a much more marked increase when you have the anti-GFP tag trip V1 and the GFP tag ferritin. And if you look at blood glucose, here's the change in blood glucose from baseline. In these particular mice, what I found with the anesthesia was that the blood glucose tended to go up, um, so a little bit like a glucose tolerance test, if you like. And with the combination of the membrane-bound ferritin and the trip V1, I see a significant reduction. But this is even more marked when you have the anti-GFP tagged channel and the GFP ferritin. So when the antibody, and, sorry, when the ferritin and the channel are in close proximity, you get a much greater effect. So we know that RF can insulin, uh, increase insulin gene expression and protein release after viral delivery using genetically encoded nanoparticles in vivo. So we can now have a system where you can use the genetically encoded nanoparticles to activate cells and gene expression in dispersed cell populations. So the question then was, could this be used for neuronal activation? And I was quite hopeful because this, this paper from 2008, which um, had mice expressing just the trip V1 in neurons, and if you add the trip V1 agonist capsaicin, you see firing, and you can also modify behavior. So I express, first of all, the constructs that I've shown you before in N38, which are hypothalamic clonal cell line, and I found that they express very well using the virus. Again, if you look at calcium entry with RF, you see that there's a very nice increase in intracellular calcium when you RF treat these neurons. I then wanted to see if I could switch on neuronal activation, and unfortunately we can't use electrophysiology in this case because the RF field swamps the electrophysiological apparatus. So I had to use more indirect methods. So I measured two things. One is phosphocrep, and one was CFOS. And if you look at phosphocrep, you can see that the RF it switches on phosphocreb within these cells. And similarly, there's a very large increase in CFOS in the neuronal cell line with RF. So RF can increase the intracellular calcium and markers of neuronal activation in the neuronal cell line. So these cells, as I um, have the trip V1 and the EGFP tagged ferritin, they don't have any reporter, I should just mention. So then I generated an adenovirus, which was a Cree-dependent version, basically, um, in the absence of pre, the construct is in the reverse orientation and you get no expression. But in the presence of pre, it flips around and becomes stuck so that you switch on your um, trip B1 and the GFP tag ferritin. And first of all, I injected this into nesting pre mice, which have um, pretty ubiquitous pre expression within the CNS. And on the adeno injector side, I see that this expression of GFP. And in the presence of RF, CFOS is switched on, and when you merge these, they're found in the same cells. So it looks like I'm switching on these cells in vivo. And on the control side, I didn't see anything. I then wanted to see if I could actually modulate a physiological function. And for this, I looked back through the literature, and in 1966, there's a paper which said that if you activate the VMH, you can increase blood glucose. So in wild-type mice, I injected my virus into the VMH, and what I find is there was no effect. That was quite reassuring. I then used my glucanase pre-mice, so I should only switch on the virus in the glucose-sensing neurons of the VMH. 
And what I find is that I can now clearly increase blood glucose in these mice with 30 minutes of RF treatment. And just for comparison, if you do optogenetic stimulation of these mice, you see a very similar effect. So the time course is really not that different. So an can show that RF can non-invasively stimulate neural populations to regulate glucose homeostasis. So in these studies I've shown that gene expression in specific cells can be remotely regulated, non-invasively with radio waves and with exogenous injected nanoparticles. That we can modify the system to produce genetically encoded nanoparticles within the cells. And this is also sufficient to activate neurons and other cells and to switch on gene expression. And that you can now use this to modify the activity of very defined subpopulations non-invasively with radio waves. So using these, I now hope to use my glucokinase cream eyes to try and map the connections of the glucokinase nerves. I'll use a combination of probably the radiogenetic and the optogenetic tools to look at the roles of specific subpopulations in the physiological regulation of glucose homeostasis. And then I can begin to look at the effects of changing glucose acutely and more chronically, and high-fat diet on these. And then perhaps using unbiased screens and other approaches, I can try and identify other markers for glucose-sensing populations because glucokinase is undoubtedly not the only glucose sensor. So what I've shown you here is that we can map and identify neural populations projecting to metabolically active organs to regulate glucose. That we can find transgenic mouse models and backtrack to identify glucose-sensing populations and that we can develop new tools to activate dispersed populations remotely in vivo to test their role in glucose metabolism. And hopefully using these sets of tools, we can now try and tease apart the neural basis of metabolic regulation and disease. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Very impressive. Questions from the audience. Mike. That was wonderful. Did, did you look at outflow tracks to Regulatory systems like the alpha cells or the pancreas, um, the adrenal glands, stuff like that? Um, I have done some tracing from the adrenal gland, and I don't have that data with me, unfortunately, but it's very similar areas of the hypothalamus that we see with the liver and with fat. Um, I didn't do the co localization studies, I didn't do dual injections with those, but they would be relatively straightforward to do. In terms of tracing from individual cell populations within the pancreas, for example, that's a little bit more difficult because um, if you use a CRE driver within the pancreas, you will switch on a CRE-dependent virus, for example, but then that will just be released into the general environment. It can be taken up by adjacent cells or by, by adjacent neurons that aren't necessarily connected to the alpha cells. But what about the role of the alpha cells, say, in response to people? Um, <coughs> hypoglycemia, hypoleptinemia, do those, I mean, you talk about a coordinate system. Yeah, I think so now having, having now been able to, to switch on particular cell populations, the aim is obviously to try and work out what's causing that change in blood glucose and to do more detailed studies looking particularly at not just insulin but also glucagon and things like that. So this is just the beginning, I hope. So, since going back to your tracing studies, it seemed that the PBH was really the primary, let's say, integrator node, whatever you'd like to call it, that's actually going out to the fat. 
Um, are you trying to develop any tools that might be used in a sort of epistatic type of test to so try to understand how the arcuate or LH signaling into the PBH, how that's coordinately affecting, you know, so if you know that CRH neurons, let's say, are the ones that are receiving <clears throat> those signals, can you do, can you modulate those neurons and now see, can that override the effect of the arcuate stimulation, sort of like Scott Sternson had been doing in the context of feeding. So I think it, you, I would probably choose to do is use tools very similar to what he's using. So it would have to be optogenetics. So tracing from a particular glucose sensing population, for example, in the VMH, and looking where the projections are. And I suspect that they'll be to multiple regions, and then trying to individually stimulate each projection to see what physiological role those have. Um, in terms of trying to combine stimulating one population and inhibiting another, is that what you're trying right. to suggest? Right, exactly. Um, I think that might be possible. I think it would be hard with the radio waves at the moment. Um, I haven't added it here, but um, I now have a mutant trip V1 channel, which has changed it from a calcium channel to a chloride channel, and that could work for inhibiting populations. I'm just testing that at the moment. But I wouldn't be able to... Well, I would, you know, you can switch on and inhibit at the same time, but I think that would be more difficult to interpret. Right. I'm not at that stage yet. So Thank you, phenomenal talk. I have a question uh, in general. I wonder how you artificially, how you artificially, uh, you have the nice comparison between optical genetics and your uh, RF way mm -hmm. of activating certain neurons, and how do you compare this uh, your RF or the optogenetic system activation to the, for example, leptin injection induced. Uh, Of the cells, and so the very elegant stuff. 
share the Atnavara stuff so you can be sure. And what challenges do you imagine and are, do you see them that you navigate around this? So I haven't yet looked at the effects of long-term expression of overexpression of ferritin. So ferritin has been used in a number of other studies, particularly as an MRI marker um, within the CNS and within the periphery and transgenic mice with overexpression of ferritin have been reported. And in those mice, it's not been reported to have any significant effect, but that's particularly in the periphery. I think in the CNS that might be a different issue because there are certainly some um, reports that changes in the iron status of neurons can particularly affect their function. So I don't think it's an ideal tool, I think, but I think it's at least a non-invasive tool that we can start with and then try and optimize, perhaps with other means of generating intracellular particles. But I wouldn't be surprised if there were some long-term effects. And so how much, just sort of along those lines, how much protein expression do you need to say? In other words, is it 2% you know, of the neuron protein, or do you, do you have a sense that yeah, maybe this for a small amount? Um, I think you actually need considerable amounts. It's not so I'm much sorry. the ferritin. I think you need considerable amounts of iron. I don't know about the ferritin itself. Right. Um, I think probably what you... Yeah, I, I can't answer that. I have to say I need to do my work. So, um, your ribosome capture experiment, in addition to being able to identify specific neuronal populations that are activated in response to were you also able to come up with general classes of genes that respond to it as a whole? And obviously, you can't tell yeah. which subpopulation, but are there ion channels or uh, um, uh, G-protein coupled receptors or, you know? I didn't actually see any much of those. Mm -hmm. I think part of the problem is obviously it's a combination of glucose, right. excited and glucose inhibitor neurons. So I think you might have to just go much deeper and identify subpopulations. The other problem is I was using microarrays rather than RNA-seq, and I think they are less sensitive, so if I was doing it to get any these RNA-seq. Did you find, and you know, when I spent some time and spent some time with people uh, in my lab to further discuss this, but did you find evidence of specific glucose transport? No, yeah. no, surprisingly not. Yeah. Okay, thank you.